And now for something completely different. Without disappointment, you can't appreciate victory. Live long and prosper. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today, I guess this is going to qualify as a very special episode of Storytime. I'm sure you remember my other very special episodes. And for those who don't get the reference, back when I was a kid, a lot of the TV shows, especially the sitcoms, would have a little warning message at the beginning of episodes that dealt with serious subjects. So it was called A Very Special Episode of Silver Spoons. They also had the after-school special. Those were basically all very special episodes. And it was TV's way of indicating that they were going to deal with a serious topic. I mean, I deal with serious topics on Storytime, but I also deal with the top 10 best Halloween candies. So that's serious too, but a different kind of serious. But today I've got stories about my dad. But these are different stories about my dad. And the reason I'm doing it this week is because it's been 15 years since he died. He died November 4th, 2006. And there's something about those anniversaries that end in 0 or 5, 10, 15, 20, 25. Something about the human mind makes those numbers more important. And so this is the 15th anniversary of the passing of my father. And we always say passing. They passed on. There's something that a lot of us humans do. We don't like to say he died. We don't like to say he's dead. He passed on. He passed away. I mean, he died. And the weird thing about it is I always knew that he died. I never really thought of him as having passed on. I don't know if that's my view of the world, the way I've grown up. That's just the way I've always thought of it. Dad died 15 years ago. But what I wanted to do today was talk a little about what was going on 15 years ago. I wanted to tell some of those stories about those last few months that he was with me, that he was with the family, not just me, obviously. And that's because with Storytime, I always try to preserve stories of my life. And this is obviously a big thing. When you lose a parent, it's a big thing. But I thought my stories might help you in case you find yourself in the same position. Because a lot of times when you're in this position, you feel like you're all alone. Even if you have family members helping you, you still feel like you're all alone. You feel like you're handling it by yourself. Because what we all deal with with our parents, it's all very personal. What's in our hearts, what's in our heads, that's us. I have two siblings. I had a mom at the time. We were all dealing with my dad's illness the same way and at the same time, but in our own personal ways. We could talk to each other, but my brother, my sister, my mother, they didn't have the same experiences I had with my dad. So dealing with my dad being sick was unique to me. I had to handle it my way. And so as a preamble to getting into the episode, what I want to tell you is when you have a relative that's sick, mom, dad, brother, sister, you're going to deal with it first on your own and second in your own way. And that's okay. Now, when I say you're dealing with it on your own, that doesn't mean you have to go through things by yourself. It just means you're going to process feelings internally by yourself. You can share those feelings with someone, a wife, a spouse, a friend, a sibling, and it does help to talk about it, and that's okay too. But we all process this kind of thing in our own way. And so when you're in this situation, don't ever think that you're doing something wrong or that you're feeling something wrong or that you should feel a certain way. You're going to feel the way you feel, and that's okay. What I wanted to do was share some of the stories of my dad's last few months. I wanted to do that partly because even when someone is sick, even when someone is dying, life goes on and there's still funny stuff that happens. And there was still funny stuff going on when my dad was sick. I also wanted to share some of the stories because there's painful stuff that happens. 
No matter what the situation is, there's painful stuff that happens, and you're going to see it, and you're going to have to deal with it. And my thought was, hearing how I dealt with it might help you somewhere down the road, or even now. Because there's often unresolved feelings, unresolved emotions, unresolved thoughts, and maybe if you realize it's okay that that's the case, it'll help. So a little background, and this goes back to one of my earlier episodes. You may remember I was brought up as a Christian scientist. That means we didn't do doctors. We didn't go to doctors. We didn't have doctors. We didn't go get checkups. We didn't go get physicals. I'm not going to go into the entire history of Christian science. You can check out the episode, You're a What Now? That's back in season one, if you want details about that. But that's the thumbnail version. We didn't do doctors. We did prayer. Now, that was when I was growing up. When I moved out and got out on my own, I discovered the beauty of Tylenol. I know that may sound silly, but once I discovered that there was a pill that I could take and make my headache go away in about 15 minutes, I realized I'd been missing out for most of my life. And while I understand and respect my parents' beliefs, I am today what you would call a former Christian scientist. I understand and recognize the beliefs. I just don't follow them anymore. But my parents did. My parents did right up through the time of my mom's death. We'll talk about my mom in detail at another time. But at the time that my dad got sick, all they knew was Christian science. All they knew was prayer. They didn't take medicine. They didn't go to the doctor. I mean, for real. They didn't do antibiotics. They didn't do shots. The only time we got shots is when we had to leave the country. We got all the mandatory vaccines. Going into the school system, we got all the mandatory shots. But other than that, we didn't do doctors. So when my dad got sick, my mom and my dad handled everything through prayer. They called a practitioner to help them pray, and my dad wasn't getting better. Now, what did he have? I don't know. That's one of the downsides of not going to the doctor. At the time that my dad got sick in August of 2006, I had no idea what he had. Now, by 2006, my dad, who had been an athlete in college, he was about 6'3", 200, 210 pounds. So a trim, athletic guy. He was on crew. He rode those boats, those long skinny boats you see in the rivers on TV shows and movies. That's what my dad did. But by the time 2006 rolled around, he was still 6'3", but he let his weight go. He'd kind of let himself go. He was up to 425 pounds. He'd become a very big guy. Now, over the years, we had tried to get him to cut down. We had tried to get him to exercise. We had tried to get him to take care of himself. But me, as a kid, it's really hard to talk to your dad about things like that. Dad, you have to change the way you're living. That's not a conversation that I ever had with my dad. It was more like, you know, Dad, Mom did get you that rowing machine, and that was it. That was as far as I would ever get in that conversation. And Mom tried. She bought Dad a rowing machine. She bought Dad one of those Nordic track skiers. I don't know if you remember those, but that was a big exercise machine back in the 70s and the 80s. She found one cheap and got it for him in the 90s. He never used them. He just didn't. It wasn't his thing. But he loved his food. He loved to eat. He just didn't like to exercise. And really, who does? And I'm pretty sure, although I don't know because I never had the conversation, but I'm pretty sure my dad always thought of himself as that athletic guy from college. You don't think of yourself as putting on weight and getting really big, even when you're putting on weight and getting really big. So anyway, I saw my dad in July of 2006, went to visit him for his birthday. He looked fine. He looked the way he always did. I mean, he was big, but he looked fine. He was moving around more slowly, but he was a big guy. Of course he was moving around more slowly. That's just what happens. But in August, I got a phone call while we were on vacation. We were in Lavalette, taking the vacation in August, just like my dad used to do. But at the time that I got the phone call, we were in the middle of a hurricane. Lavalette is on one of the barrier islands protecting New Jersey, and it was all flooded out. That's how bad it was. The roads were closed, we were stuck in Lavalette, and I got a call from my mom on the cell phone. 
And my mom said that my dad had fallen down trying to get to the bathroom and couldn't get up. And my mom, who was 5'2 and about 150 pounds, couldn't pick him up. Not a surprise. Now I'm two and a half hours away and locked into a barrier island that I can't get off. So I couldn't do anything at that point. I would have. I would have been there if I could, but I couldn't even get off the island. So I told her to call my sister and her husband, and I told her to call my brother. I also told her to call the local paramedics, because the paramedics were literally five minutes from the house. There was a rescue squad down the street. I knew they could be there in five minutes or less. But my parents didn't like to call doctors. They didn't like to go to doctors. They didn't like to go to paramedics. They didn't want to do that. Now me, at that point in my life, I would have crawled to the doctor's office. But that's me. I'm not shy. If I'm feeling bad, oh, doctor, give me something, anything. Give me a shot, give me a pill, just lay it on me, make me feel better. That was not my parents. So what happened is I was monitoring this situation by cell phone. And as you can imagine, quite frustrated because there was nothing I could do. I'm one of those guys who's a fixer. I need to fix things. If something's wrong, I need to go fix it. I need to figure out what's wrong, figure out how to fix it, and figure out how to make it right. And I have to do that in person. That's just the way I am. And the fact that I got the call and couldn't do anything about it was making me crazy. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the details and all of the phone calls. There was a lot of them. Trust me, there was a lot of them. But what had prompted my dad to try to get up from his chair, which is where he loved to be in his chair, what had prompted him was he had to go to the bathroom. And that poor man was collapsed on the floor. He was conscious, but he just couldn't get up. His legs wouldn't work. And that poor man just wanted to go to the bathroom. What eventually happened is, after my brother and my brother-in-law got to the house, the EMTs finally did get there too. My mom finally agreed to call them. And I got this story from my mom after the fact, because, as I said, I wasn't there. But I can picture the scenario, and I can picture my father, because I know my father. So my dad's chair was in the family room. The middle of the family room was open, the TV was on the other side of the room, and if he had to get up, he'd get up from the chair and cross the middle of the room. And it was the getting up from the chair and trying to cross the middle of the room that caused him to collapse. So you've got this big fella sitting in the middle of the family room, unable to get up. The local rescue squad showed up and there was two guys in the squad. And they saw a six foot three, 400 pound guy collapsed on the middle of the floor and they had to call for backup. So another EMT crew came. A couple of the local police officers came. So according to my mom, there were six or seven guys gathered around my dad in the middle of the family room. And as my mom tells the story... My dad was sitting there in the middle of the floor, looked up at all the people around him, and said, completely straight-faced, So I suppose you wonder why I called this meeting. And that was my dad. Even in the middle of something like that, my dad had a joke. So typical. But that was the way he was. So they eventually got him onto one of those mobile stretchers, the gurneys, whatever you call them, and they got him to the ambulance, and they took him to one of the local hospitals, the nearest one. It was a close hospital. That's why they went there. It wasn't the best hospital, but it was close. And by close, I mean proximity. They weren't going to leave him because he needed some treatment. And I told my mom, just do what they say. I was on the phone with her at the time. I said, I know you want to go with Christian Science, but just take him to the hospital. At least have him checked out. At least get some answers. And they finally agreed to do so. And when they got him to the hospital, my dad was finally able to go to the bathroom. Poor man. So as far as I know, that was my dad's first admission to the hospital in his life. And they admitted him and they kept him for observation and they ran some tests. And again, we don't know 100% what was wrong with him because they just ran preliminary tests. He was dehydrated. It appears there was some kind of an issue with a heart valve. And of course, there was an issue with his weight. But they kept him there for a couple of days. 
By the way, after the weather broke, I was able to get from Lavalette up to where he was, and we visited him in the hospital, and I was able to catch up on all that had happened. And my dad was okay. He was conscious. He was doing all right. But he was confined to a bed for a couple of days. Not happy. That's not my dad. Lying in bed for a couple of days? So not my dad. But they wouldn't let him out. He had to get better. So they gave him some antibiotics. They set up some appointments for him after they released him. And they told him, you have to go to these appointments. And I was there when they were discharging him. I remember the nurse coming in and she had a checklist. And she said, there are a couple things you need to do once we release you. You need to watch what you eat. Here's a list of foods. You can eat whole wheat bread. You should confine yourself to egg whites. You should eat a lot of vegetables. You should stay away from sweets. You really need to work on your weight. And the nurse left us the checklist. And I remember this vividly. My dad turned to me and he said, I'll eat what I damn well want to eat. And that also is my dad. It didn't matter that he'd been admitted to the hospital for the first time in his life. It didn't matter that he'd collapsed in the middle of the family room floor. It didn't matter that it took seven people to haul him out of the house and get him to the hospital. Dad was going to eat what he wanted to eat. And nobody was going to tell him different. Least of all, some random nurse in some random hospital. So I remember they had to take him out of the hospital in a wheelchair because all of the hospitals make you exit in a wheelchair. And I remember he wasn't in any shape to drive. They did have a minivan. My mom was driving the minivan. And this is one of those vivid memories that I have of my dad. I still can conjure this picture up anytime I want because it just stuck in my head that day. My mom was behind the wheel of the minivan. The nurses helped my dad into the front passenger seat. My dad put on his trucker's hat because he always had a trucker's hat. And he put on his dark sunglasses. And I see him sitting in the passenger seat of that minivan, the window down, his arm on the windowsill, just looking ahead as they drove out of the hospital parking lot. I don't know why that memory stayed with me. I don't know why that's a picture I have locked in my head, but it's a picture that's locked in my head to this day. I think it's because he was looking so hopeful. He was out of the hospital and ready to go home. And I think he was really up for that. But whatever was going on with him, it didn't get better. There was a lot of phone calls between me and my mom and me and my dad. And I told her that she really needed to keep those doctor's appointments. The doctor was only about a 10-minute drive from the house. There was no difficulty in getting to the doctor physically. But I think that they were combating the lifetime of religious background and prayerful work that they had relied on all of their lives. And it was very difficult for them to just change course and go to the doctor. And I had some long talks with my mom. And I said, Mom, I'm not saying that you shouldn't rely on Christian science. I'm not saying you can't rely on your religion. But what I'm saying is, if it's not working, maybe you should consider alternatives. And this is just an alternative. And we went back and forth quite a bit on that. They wound up going to the first appointment, but they didn't make the second appointment, and I wasn't sure why until after the fact. My dad had sat down in his chair again and wasn't even able to get up. And I talked to my mom on the Monday of this appointment, and she said that dad was tired and he couldn't get out of the chair. So I told her to reschedule. But I had a weird feeling about it, and so I called her the next morning, which was a Tuesday, and she said dad was still tired and he was still sleeping in the chair. And I said, mom, is he asleep? Are you able to talk to him? Are you able to wake him? And she told me she was talking to him and he just didn't feel like getting out of the chair. And I still had a weird feeling about it. I called her again in the middle of the day on Tuesday. I called her again on Tuesday night and he was still resting. Now, this is one of those situations where you're torn because you're the kid and you're used to listening to your parents and relying on what they tell you. But at the same time, there's something in your gut that tells you there's something wrong. And it's a horrible battle to fight internally. And I was trying to defer to my parents because they're my parents. But at the same time, I just knew something was wrong. So Wednesday rolls around and I called my mom in the morning to check on my dad. 
and he was still resting in the chair. Now, on this particular day, what I had to do for work took me really close to my parents' house, like 15 minutes away. So I said, look, Mom, if Dad's not up by the time I get done with work, which would have been about noon, we're calling the rescue squad and we're taking him to the hospital. Because I know you can't just be sitting still for 48 hours. You just can't. It's not good for you. And especially if my dad was sick. So I got done with work. I drove up to my parents' house. My dad was barely conscious. And I know my mom meant well. And I know my mom was trying to do the right thing. But my dad was not moving. He didn't recognize me when I came in. He was in trouble. And I said to my mom, we have to get him out of here. We have to get him help. And I had been talking to some friends about the situation. And they supported me. Before I had gone up to my parents, they said, you've got to get your dad help. If your mom's not helping him, you've got to get him help. And they said, you have to take him to Morristown Hospital. Morristown is a big hospital. It had a lot more facilities than the local hospital they'd taken him to before. And the rescue squad didn't want to take him that far. Well, that's not the closest hospital. I know it's not. Give me a waiver. I'll sign it. Take him to Morristown. And so after signing all the appropriate waivers, because of course the rescue squad didn't want to get sued in case my dad didn't make it to Morristown, because that's what they're worried about, we got him to Morristown. They admitted him to Morristown. They kept him there for a couple of weeks. And during that time, I was in constant contact with my mom, with my dad, because he had a cell phone. He was able to use that at the hospital. I was in contact with the doctors. I was in contact with the nurses. I was trying to explain to everybody that my parents, they don't use doctors. So please go through me. This is all very confusing to them. So go through me, which they did. They all had my number. And I was hearing from nurses and hearing from doctors. A lot of them didn't understand what my parents' situation was. Some of them had never even heard of Christian science. So I was constantly educating people about what my parents' background was. I would have to field multiple questions on, well, what's the medical history? Well, I don't know. Well, why don't you know? Well, they don't go to doctors. Why don't they go to doctors? Well, they're Christian scientists. They're what now? The amount of time that I spent educating people on Christian science, I could give lectures now. So they kept him in Morristown for a couple of weeks, but then they had to take him to a step-down facility, which is a medical euphemism for a different hospital that doesn't have all the cool stuff we have here at Morristown, but we can't do anything more for him here at Morristown. So they took him to the step-down facility. Now, there was a lot that was happening at Morristown. There was a lot happening at the step-down facility that was in a town called Dover. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail at this point. I may do that again in a future episode. But there's two reasons I'm not going to go into too much detail. Number one, it's kind of boring hearing how somebody has to deal with doctors and nurses, hearing how many visits you make to the hospital. It is boring just to listen to somebody say, well, I went to the hospital 74 times. But also, it's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about. I wanted to preserve these stories. I wanted to preserve this whole episode. But as I'm doing this episode today, it is hard to talk about. It's been 15 years, and I still feel those feelings. Because it's my dad. I was working really hard with the hospitals, with the doctors, with the nurses, with my mom. I was working real hard to get my dad care, literally for months, September, October. I was doing everything that I could. And in my mind, I was doing everything I could to save my dad. I was trying to fix things. It was the fixer in me. I wanted to fix this. And in the end, I wasn't able to. And that was very, very hard to deal with. And it still is. I mean, logically, I know that I did everything that I could. Logically, I know the doctors did everything they could. Logically, I know that what happened to my dad was, in large part, what my dad did to himself. But that emotional part of you, that kid trying to help their parent, whatever those emotions are, 
You never lose those. You never forget those. It stays with you. Fifteen years later, I can still feel that frustration, and I can still feel that loss. As I said, there's a lot that happened between Dover and Morristown. There were a lot of meetings, a lot of phone calls. I had a few sit-downs with the team of doctors and the team of nurses. I had a meeting with everybody to explain why my dad didn't have psychological problems. They wanted to have him examined by a psychiatrist because he couldn't remember what his family history was. And I had to explain, he doesn't need a psychologist. He's not having a psychiatric episode. The man has never been to a doctor. Those are the kind of conversations that I had to have time and time again. But that all led us up to November 4th. My dad was admitted to Morristown in September and never got home again. He was in various departments at Morristown. He was transported from Morristown to Dover. He was there for a couple of weeks and never got out. And November 4th was a weird night. My mom had been spending every day at the hospital, of course. I mean, hours and hours of just keeping my dad company. And she'd gotten into the habit of taking a dinner break around 6 o'clock, and then she'd either go back to the hospital if she was feeling up to it, or she'd call my dad and talk to him for a while before she went to bed. So around dinner time, my mom left the hospital, and it was around 6.30 or so that I got a call from the doctor. And the doctor said, your dad's in trouble, you need to get here. We can't reach your mom. Mom had left for dinner. I was home getting ready for dinner. And I found out later that my mom was charging her phone and didn't have access to the phone. So I hopped in my car and drove to the hospital. I made the 45-minute drive in about 25 minutes, because that's what you do. And I got to the ICU unit, and I was the only one there. I had called my brother on the way to the hospital and said, get to the hospital. My brother was more than an hour away, so he had to make arrangements to get to the hospital. I kept trying my mother and my sister, and I got to the ICU unit, and it was me and the doctors and my dad on the table. And they explained to me my dad was in septic shock. He had sepsis, and they didn't expect him to get better. He had an oxygen mask on, but I was able to get into the room with him, and I held on to his hand. And I told him I was there, and I said, I'm right here. Don't worry, I'm right here. And he squeezed my hand. And I remember, he gave me a very firm squeeze. So I know he knew it was me, and I know he was still there. But then things happened, and the doctors came up to me and said, do we revive him? Now, my brother wasn't there yet, my mother wasn't there yet, my sister wasn't there yet, and I said, yes, of course, revive him. And they explained to me he may not be the same, and he may not come out of this. And I said, you have to revive him. And they were able to. It was right about this time that my brother arrived. Shortly after that, my sister and my mother arrived, and we were all able to say goodbye. But it was a rough night. As I said, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this episode was to preserve these stories of that night, of that period of time, actually. I want them for me. I want them for my family. I want everybody to know what happened. But I also wanted it out there so that anybody who listens to this knows it's not easy. And when you're going through things like this, it'll be very painful to you, but you're not alone. You're not the only person who's had to deal with this kind of stuff. And the feelings that you're feeling are entirely valid. Now, I've made it no secret that I did not have a perfect relationship with my father, but I had a good relationship with my father. He was my dad. We did things together. We went to auctions. We had conversations. He's the guy who raised me. He's the guy who taught me right from wrong. I know there are other relationships out there where fathers are even closer to their sons than mine was to me. You go to the football games together. You go hunting together. You go running together. I also know there are relationships where there are abusive fathers, where they're mean, where they're nasty where they're alcoholic drunks. They're fathers who are just deadbeat dads. And when they die, you're happy to see them go. That's a valid feeling too. It's okay to feel that way. 
Whatever you're feeling in this situation, it's valid. It's okay to feel that way. If you're feeling pain, it's okay. If you're feeling numb, it's okay. If you're feeling relief, it's okay. I was feeling pain and I was feeling numb. That night when I got home, I remember crying like a baby. And I was crying because I couldn't save him. And in the days and weeks that followed, I also had the feelings of relief. The relief that I felt was that he was no longer in pain. I felt relief for him because I knew that he was facing a long uphill battle and I wasn't sure he wanted to fight that battle just based on the way he was in the hospital, based on the conversations we had. And believe me, I had many. While he was in Morristown, while he was in Dover, we talked a lot. And I was just getting the sense that he was almost giving up. He never said that exactly. But for the only time in my life, I had the sense that my dad was, I don't want to say fearful, but resigned. And I remember my mom telling me about a conversation he had with her where he apologized. He apologized for letting himself go. He apologized for putting her in this position. And that kind of stuck with me too. So as I said, when you lose a loved one, when you lose a family member, when you lose a parent, it's hard. We all deal with grief differently. Sometimes you talk to friends. Sometimes you talk to a spouse. Sometimes you talk to a sibling. But however you deal with it, it's okay. What you're feeling is real. How you deal with it is okay, and however long it takes, it's okay too. The only caveat to that last one is this. You can't wallow in grief. You have to move on. They say grieving takes as long as it takes, and that's true. But you have to remember that the person who's gone would not want you to go with them. They would want you to live on. They would want you to live your life. They would want you to make the most out of what you have. My dad wouldn't have wanted me to wallow in grief for 15 years. I was sad. I was numb. It was difficult for me for a while. It was especially difficult because I was helping my mom deal with it. They were true soulmates, and it was very, very, very difficult for her. She died less than two years later, and I am firmly convinced that she died of a broken heart because she didn't have him anymore. But that also emphasized to me that it's okay to grieve, but you do have to live your life. But if there's one main thing that I learned from all this, and that I hope you take from this, is that it's okay to grieve however you need to grieve, but it's also okay to live your life. So first off, I want to thank you for listening. I know that wasn't the upbeat stories that I usually tell, but these are stories that I wanted to preserve and wanted to share with you, and I appreciate you listening this far. I do think of my dad all of the time. I think of what he would think about this, the podcast, you're doing a what now? And people actually listen? He would be amazed. He would also be amazed at the Twitch stream. Wait a minute. You're playing video games. You're broadcasting that. And people actually watch you do that? What's wrong with people? Because that would be my dad. But I do keep his memory alive. Obviously, I talk about him all the time, right? How many times does he come up in the podcast? My dad was a big influence on my life. And the only thing I still wonder is if he knew how big an influence he was. I hope he did. Anyway. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate your support, and I do appreciate all the time you spend here. And next week, it won't be a very special episode. It'll just be a regular episode. We can only get so serious so often, but I appreciate you letting me do so this time. You guys take care of yourselves. And until next time, I'll see you when I see you.